Matthew chapter number 7, uh, for those who have been with us along our journey, we journeyed through what's known as the golden rule our last time together, and that was Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12. But um, as we continue studies, we are nearing the conclusion of what Jesus is going to say here in the Sermon on the Mount, and I pick up with you in the text in verse number 13, for those who are listening uh, outside these walls, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church, and this is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message, uh, just simply entitled, Walking in the Way of Christ. And he's laid out the roadmap for us, and you can study along with us, as I mentioned, in Matthew chapter number 7 and verse number 13. In these passages, we read Jesus telling his disciples to enter in at the straight gate. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand the path of our feet this morning as followers of Christ as His disciples gathered together around Your Word, our hearts lifted up and stirred by wonderful worship music together to draw our mind to what Christ did for us already. Lord, I pray that His words would mean even that much more to us as we consider the precious gift He gave of His own life's blood. Oh Lord, I want to walk in Your way. Teach me Thy way. Show me the path of life. Your Word is full of promises to that end. Lord, it's a dangerous road. It's a constricted road. It's a a road upon which surely I'll have to agonize and strive to enter. It's a narrow, constricted gate that leads to this road. And Lord, I pray that You'll help Your words to be life today for those that need to find that life. Lord, there's so many that live in emptiness And I lived there for a long, long time in my life. But one day Jesus came and He showed me the right way. And Lord, I put my foot in front of the other and set my hand to the plow. 
And I had the kingdom of heaven in front of me, Lord, and nothing has changed from that day. I yearn to be with you, Lord. I long for true, my true heavenly home. And one day, one day, Lord, to think about Christmas with Christ. That just humbles me. Oh, Lord, bless your word and bless the preaching of it with unction and power, Lord, with the spirits moving and with your divine surgery as the good physician, the great physician, and the one who loves and gives his life for his sheep. Lord, bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, I ask and pray. Amen. In this passage, I would summarize it for you this way, in that the, the way of destruction is contrasted with the way, the way of life, the way of everlasting life. And uh, I don't know that there's much more that I can do to explain what Jesus is saying here to you. It, it reads fairly simply. Uh, there, we don't need a, a, a big theological dictionary to understand. There's two choices to make in life. There's two paths that we can walk on. Uh, anyone who has lived long enough knows that there's good choices and bad choices. There's right choices and wrong choices. And, and we learn the consequences of our wrong choices. And we learn the consequences as well of our good choices. And depending on how we sow and how we, how we walk is how we'll reap. And so our Savior continues. But let me, let me just remind us of where this fits within the rest of the sermon. Because context will help us understand the overall thrust. Lest we miss something, or lest we do a disservice to what Jesus is saying here. Now, as a preacher of the gospel, one of the things that I endeavor to do in each of the preaching times that the Lord allows me to have, with the breath He gives me, is to make sure that somewhere along the way, there is an appeal for the gospel. There is an appeal for others to come to Christ. Now, if you've uh, listened to my preaching for any, any length of time, you'll notice that at the close of each message, even if it's a message to disciples per se, and it's a passage of Scripture that's not uh, really lent itself to the Gospel in particular, but it's truths that we live and grow by as followers of Christ, now, without fail, I always try to at least present the Gospel, whether it's in a prayer that I pray, or whether it's in some way that I can draw people to think about Jesus who died for them, and if they'll believe on Him, they can have everlasting life. And so the Gospel call resounds. Here, I think Jesus as a preacher is doing no different. And I think preachers through the ages have had a good precedent for them by the Savior Himself. Because as He begins to wind down His sermon, and I, I almost hesitate to say wind down because these last verses are so thick and, and just full of, of deep meat for the one who would have spiritual eyes to see what's here. Jesus Christ is not letting up when I say winding down. Jesus Christ is bringing all the thoughts that He has said from chapter 5 uh, and verse 3 on. He's bringing all of that into a nice concluding summary and driving home the application points that you and I need to live by as followers of Christ. So the bottom line is, are you saved? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you changed your mind about your standing with God, that He has a righteous law that we have violated as mankind, and all have sinned and come short of that glory that He originally created us with? If you realize your sin, and you realize the consequence for that, the way of destruction lies at the end of that path. If you do not change your course, you will die and pay for your sins for all eternity in the lake of fire. That's Scripture. That's not me being bigoted. That is Scripture. That is God's Word, not my Word. If you have an issue with those teachings, take it up with God. 
We're in his universe. He makes the laws. As J. Vernon McGee says, if you don't like that, go make your own universe. You can make the laws. And then you can take that up with God at a later time. This is the truth of the word of God. Hell is real. And there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And so we come to heaven through Jesus Christ. We get on that narrow way through him. That's my question to you. Are you saved? If you're saved, then Jesus then will come alongside somewhere in your journey with him. And he'll give you the invitation he gave to his disciples. Follow me. Two words. Simple words. But how profound. That's the crossroads. That's where I can live saved, yes, and I can go about fishing, or you know, I use that because the disciples did on the Sea of Galilee. I can, I can fish, and I can do that as a saved person and be on my way to heaven, but if I don't heed that invitation to follow, then I'll never be transformed completely into what Jesus would have me to be. That is, to become a fisher of men or a fisher of people because He's concerned about souls. And so if you're saved, then the call comes to be His disciple. That's where the Sermon on the Mount is the rubber meets the road. It's for disciples. It's not for a ticket into heaven. In other words, what I mean is there have been those throughout church history that have taught that if you keep the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount and you do enough of that good that's in there, then when you stand before God one day, He'll put it all on the scales and if your good outweighs your bad, then you'll get a ticket in. Friend, I wouldn't ride that train if I were you. Because that train, according to Jesus in these verses, is headed over a precipice into destruction. And the lie of the devil from the ages gone by has been, you can outweigh your bad with good. It will never work. I don't care how much good you do, you still have that black blot on your soul. And the emptiness that's inside. And it seems like you can never do enough. Never do enough. You do good and you do good and you do good. And it's exhausting and you get weary and well-doing if you're doing it to gain entrance into heaven. But I'm thankful that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with getting into heaven. Amen? That's not what it's about. It's about living my life and letting my light shine so that I can share the hope of Jesus with everybody around me. And the goal of a disciple is to live in a way that would bring others humbly before God for them to look up and realize they have to do with Him. And they just might get converted through something that I say or do. And it's not about me. It's about them finding the peace and hope and joy that Jesus gives and as I follow Christ, He's going to mold me. He's going to fashion me. He's going to work on me. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. There will be Sunday mornings like today where you just say, Lord, you're in control no matter what. If we have sound stuff, we have sound stuff. If we don't, we're going to have church. Amen? And so the thought occurred to me on the way here is, you know, if I would have got that van out, uh, we would. I, you know, I've talked about showing up to church with just my Bible and my hymnal before. It might have happened today. We came really close. That's, that's really all we need. Isn't it to gather together? But isn't it great to be able to have all the things that help us enjoy the gift of music and be able to worship God in our heart and life? And so as I look at Jesus' words about entering in at the straight gate, note the spelling. I don't want to be redundant here, but I do want to point out there's no G-H. Do this if you understand what I mean. Okay, so there's two English words. Straight, and you know this, one is constricted, and that's the spelling we have here. The other one means a straight line, not curved. 
So the word that's used here has no GH. We're not talking about a straight line. We're talking about a constricted, narrow way. One of the, one of the things that helped me along the way in studying this was, uh, I'll quote J. Vernon McGee again, he used an illustration and I thought, you know, that's, that's, that's a good way to think about it. He said, he said the way to think about this is to think of it like a funnel. You know, you have a funnel and it has a wide end and it has a narrow end. And depending on which way you enter the funnel, <laughs> you're getting the picture in your mind like I did too. So there's a broad way. And that broad way funnels down and leads to destruction. There's no other way to destruction at the end of that. But the way of the Lord is if you flip that funnel over and you come through Christ because He's the only way, it's so constricted and so narrow, you come through Christ and it opens up the whole world of eternal life to you. I don't know about you, that's the way I want to go. What I want to open up. I don't want to start easy and then and then end in destruction. I don't want to be able to carry everything I want through this life and then and then get to the end and have to have it all burn up. Lord, I want to come through you. And so enter ye in at the straight gate. So I have some thoughts for you from this passage. First off, I would ask you the question how tight is too tight? Now, don't be thinking about your belt or anything of that nature. Okay, I'll give you an illustration to help you come along in in my way of thinking here on this. How tight is too tight? Here in Colorado, we have a prime example of how to illustrate this. And the word, the reason I use this is because of all the words in here. We get our English word plateau from, if you look it up. And so what's a plateau? A plateau is a big open area. So have you ever been over to the the table mesa? Table, table. That's like redundant, isn't it? Uh, the, The Mesa Verde Plateau. How many of you have been over to Mesa Verde? Uh, It's just this broad, flat area. I mean, it just opens for miles and miles and miles. It's a very broad way. And so you can bask in all the fields and everything out there, and it's a little uh, higher in elevation, but there's green fields and all kinds of animals and and, ranch land and farmland out there. It's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, It's a place where maybe, you know, if you ever got a chance to retire, maybe you could go retire out there and just have a ranch or something. I don't know, maybe that's not your cup of tea, but... You know, I just think about relaxing out there. The winters might be a little a little challenging sometimes, but I just think of a place where you've got the whole range to yourself, you know, and you can come and go as you please. And it's a broad way. And, and uh, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of work that goes into the land and things that, that we see around here. But you get the idea about that plateau, that broad way. And then, right in the same area of Colorado, not very far from the, from the Mesa Verde Plateau, it's a place where I went last spring with our children, and that was over at Glenwood Caverns. And Glenwood Caverns opens up to this cavernous area that they're still exploring, and they haven't even mapped the whole thing out yet. And we had the privilege of doing a wild tour, and we had a, a great guide with us, and she was, you know, she was familiar, and she could probably climb through there blindfolded, you know, with her hands tied behind her. Well, maybe not that, because you got to climb and stuff. But she was a great guide. Without her, I would have never gotten out of there. I wouldn't have. She was leading us through nooks and crannies. There were some things that we climbed through that I was like, okay, kids, you go on, I'll meet you on the other side. Because I'm like, no, you know, maybe in you know, my, past, my past years, when I was younger, I might be able to squeeze through some of these things. Tight and narrow, constricted. So how tight is too tight? Some of that stuff I would look at and I'd go, there's no way. It's just not even physically possible. So Jesus says there is a gate. There is a gate that is narrow. There's also Broadway. What do you have to do to be on the Broadway? Absolutely nothing. You, you just kind of live life and, and go along. 
And the end of that is sad. There's a constricted way. There's a keyhole, if you will, to use spelunking terms. We name all those things that we got to climb through so we remember them, right? All the pain we had to go through to get through them, the contortions. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand me. You don't have to get in a contorted way in any, any shape or form. The only position you need to come to get through the gate that Christ mentions is prostrate. You need to come humble and say, Lord, not in pride. Lord, it's not my way, but thy way. I acknowledge, I agree with you that you are the way to life. Now, we're connecting the greater understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. What has Jesus been hammering home and hammering home and hammering home since He began? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on and so on through those eight Beatitudes. And then He talks about His disciples being salt and light. He talks about the persecution they'll face. He talks about their relationship to the law of Moses. You've heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, and then he expounds six sections of that to show the spirit of the law, that the spirit of the law leads to life and the letter of the law kills. What's he been pointing out? Oh, don't do like the hypocrites do. Don't live your life wearing a mask, looking good on the outside, but having your heart far away from God, because in his audience and within earshot of what he was saying in this day were those that he will later condemn in the Gospel of Matthew and say, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! Woe unto you! Why would he pronounce woe on them? Because they had made their own righteousness and imposed things upon God's Word that God never put there. And they made their own system of religion and had their own traditions of teachings and said, you know, this is the way. And they looked really good doing it. And they fooled a lot of people. And can I tell you, some Baptist churches today have been no different than than what we've seen in the, in the days of Christ. As sad as that is, and I don't mean to talk bad about any particular church or anything. You, you've observed it with me. And it's an easy trap to fall in because it's easy to get the outside right and then the heart stays far away from God. We just go through the motions, everything becomes mechanical, and that's the danger. Jesus is warning adamantly, if you're going to follow Him, there's no place for mechanics in your walk. You have to be real. You have to be genuine. And it's going to hit you where it hurts sometimes. And you're going to have to dig deep. And it's who you are that's going to make the difference to somebody else. Not necessarily what you can do or what you can pray or what you can say. It's who you are. Who are you as following Christ? Has that transformation happened? Why do you pray? All these questions are answered. Why do you pray? Is it so that you can make yourself feel better? Is it so that God can hear you? Is it so that others can hear you? We answered that question. For whom do you fast? Are you fasting because you're trying to get right with God? You messed up somewhere along the way? That's fine. Get right with God, but don't stop there. If you're fasting only for that, then you're no better than Israel of days gone by who was led into judgment. When you fast, it'd be better if you'd skip a meal and help somebody else because they don't have something to eat. All the while, pointing them to Jesus. Fasting. Why are you fasting? Who are you doing it for? Nobody has to know. You just go without so that somebody else can have. That's true fasting. In, in my understanding of what I've studied through what Jesus is saying. And so, why are you praying? How do you formulate your prayers? The pattern of prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Note this. Thy will be done on earth. Jesus said, for those that will stand before the judgment, many will say, Lord, Lord. 
Did we not do this, do this, do this, do this, do this? He'll say, you did all of that, but you didn't do the one thing that mattered. You didn't do the will of my Father which is in heaven. And what's His will? John chapter 6 answers that. What is His works? The works of God, the will of God is that you would believe on the one He has sent. And they refused to do that. The Pharisees rejected the one that God had sent. And that's where the parting of the ways happens. And so now we understand a little better. There's a difference between a true disciple of Christ and a self-righteous Pharisee, isn't there? A big difference. And you can tell it. You can smell it from a mile away, can't you? Yeah. Oh yeah, I know why you're here. I know why you're here. I know why you're here. You're expecting something in return. You're expecting favor with God. You're expecting favor from mankind. You're doing this so you can be seen by everybody else since you're super spiritual. Fooling on all that. That's not going to help anybody but yourself, maybe for a little while, and then it'll end to destruction. And you'll stand before God empty handed if you're saved, and you'll face judgment at worst if you're lost. Just like verse 21 says. And to hear those words from the lips of the one that you said you followed, the one that you said you were living for, and he's the one before all creation that says, Depart from me. How can that be? This, friend, is the danger of false teaching in the church today. Plain and simple. Now, whether those that are entering into destruction at the end of it all are those that are the Pharisees, and we would classify them as that, or those that were deceived by their teachings, it matters not. Because the end result is the same. They followed the wrong way. And they landed in destruction. And that's not what God wants. And He is doing everything He came here to lay before us openly the right way, the way to life. And so how tight is too tight? There are two gates. One leads to the broad way. The other gate leads to... uh, The other constricted gate leads to life. And so, notice the shepherding imagery that's here. John chapter number 10, when I studied through that, I was enamored with how our Lord is the good shepherd. And He gives His life for the sheep. One phrase He said in there uh, really struck me. He said, I lead them to good pastures. Now I'm paraphrasing how He said it. But He says, I know the way. He's the shepherd. If there's anybody I want to follow to where I know there's going to be life and there's going to be good pastures, I'm going to follow Him. So notice the idea of the gate here. I think there's a shepherding aspect to that. There's a gate in which we can go. We can go our own way, and the Lord's not going to impose Himself upon us unduly. We have a choice to make. The gates, you know, the the sheep, they come to you as sheep, uh, but they're really wolves inside. They're wearing this sheep's clothing. You see the shepherding aspect there? What about the fruits? You know, uh, the shepherd leads the sheep where they can go bask and they can eat. And so we have a picture of the fruit and the trees and all of that. Now, I grew up in Georgia. Many of you know that. And uh, in Georgia, we have blackberry vine, blackberry uh, bushes everywhere. You know, we have briars all over the place. And I learned real quick to stay away from the briars. But there was one time a year where I would I would venture into the briars and I would come back and, you know, you could tell every little poke you got when you start rubbing alcohol or something. You just like, wow, just millions of little tingles everywhere. And, oh, blackberries. Man, it's time to make some jam. That's what I'm saying. Put that on some biscuits. And, you know, biscuits and blackberry jam and 
I don't mean cookies now. In the UK, you know, biscuits are cookies. I'm talking about biscuits. Amen. <laughs> and so, from from a distance, hang on with me now. From a distance, you start approaching that blackberry bush. Those blackberries, I've never confused one for a grape, but they can look an awful lot like grapes until you get close enough to see. And then you get really close and you find what my, what my mama would warn me of. Don't eat that until you wash it, boy, because you'll be eating spiders. Okay, these little mites and stuff that live in there if you don't wash them yet. That's just some down-home knowledge for you from experience. <laughs> you, get a, you get a tummy ache, you, you might, you might want to uh, check, your, check your blackberries. <laughs> Make sure you wash them real good. Uh, you understand what I mean. So these, these uh, false teachers, these religious-looking people, they come... And, and they look real good from a distance. And we want them in our mix. And, and boy, isn't that, the, isn't that the way we are at church? We just want to love everybody, amen? And so it doesn't matter. You come on in. You make yourself at home. But after a while, we find out there's an ulterior motive. This breaks my heart. But it's so true. Nine years in the ministry. And I wish that I could say everybody we've been able to talk to and reach here in Broomfield has been part of us. But John said, well, he said, they went out from us because they were not of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. And not every time, okay, this isn't everybody that leaves. There have been, there have been you know, those, those, those few times where I know because we took a firm stand on something here as a church and we said we're not going to compromise doctrinally, they, they moved on. Because they found out they're not going to be able to promote their teaching here. Because it doesn't line up with Scripture. It doesn't. Somewhere along the way, that's, that's what will break down. And Jesus tells us, you'll know them by their fruits. So how do you tell the difference between a briar and a, and a muscadine? Okay, I'll just use southern terms. I know what muscadines look like. I can spot those from a mile away. Riding my bike. You know when muscadines were coming in? Those wild grapes, that's what they are, the wild grapes. I, I remember summer times, I would pull my back over and I would sit underneath a big cluster of them and I'd pick them until my belly hurt, you know. And hot summer day, muggy in Georgia, and you just have muscadines until your heart's content. And then go get some blackberries. I know the difference between the two, but from a distance, you know, those, those muscadines can look like grapes. What about figs and thistles? You know, the, the, the plants that I got to observe when I was over in Israel, there was a thorn bush that um, is what they say was the, the one that they wove around and put on Christ's head. And these thorns, you see them flower from a distance, and it might look like it's a fig flower. It could. I mean, you could you could mistake the two. But by the time you get close, you find out there's a needle on that thing that it's going to stab you through. What a picture. Boy, it looks good. It looks flowery on the outside. And, and boy, we start getting close, and then, then the piercing comes. And we find we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows because we wind up on this path that leads to serving God and mammon. And Jesus said, you can't serve both. Right here in this sermon. He said, you can't serve both. So how tight is too tight? The parallelism. There's Hebrew parallelism all throughout this. Uh, just parallel after parallel. You can line them up next to each other. It's beautiful how our Savior said it. There's a connection to agony and persecution. You see, this constricted way. Luke translates it uh, in this way. We have it given to us as strive to enter the straight gate. You see, Jesus already connected this idea back when he told his disciples, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Well, that all sounds good. Why? 
Because so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So if you're going to follow this way, I have to be upfront with you. It's going to get narrow. Sometimes it might be so narrow that like the Apostle Paul said, no man stood with me. It's a lonely place to be. And if you want to know what loneliness is, get involved in ministry. Oh, but you're with people all the time, Pastor. Yeah, but ministry's a lonely place. I gotta be, I gotta be transparent with you. There are a few people that I can let into a very intimate place in my life. I have people there, so I'm not lonely. Don't don't misunderstand me. But I know I've walked the road. You give yourself and you give yourself and you give yourself and you give yourself, and you can only cut yourself into so many pieces before there's nothing left. Okay, and you give yourself, and then the people you get closest to are those who hurt you the most. That's a summary of ministry. That's an honest summary of ministry. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, because that's what ministry is. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? What a parallel. And so, I learned not only the power of His resurrection, and I preach the resurrection of Christ and, and the life, and He is not here, He is risen, as He said, but I also know what Paul said about the fellowship of His suffering. It's a narrow way. Sometimes it can be lonely only as we're maybe isolated from others in a sense, but we're never isolated from Christ because in that same passage that I told you about, Paul said, no man stood with me, but what did he go on to say? Christ was with him the whole way. And that's where you know that intimacy of the fellowship of Christ. And you can rest knowing that Lord... You knew this before I started on this way. I followed you. You knew this was coming before I ever did. I'm standing with you, and if everyone else goes away, the Lord had a similar occurrence in His ministry in John 6 that I've already referred to earlier. Hundreds, hundreds in one sermon, one sermon. That was a great, great uh, service, huh? Preaching, everybody believes. He turns around to the 12, one of those is a betrayer, turns around to them and says, will you go away also? These are hard things to understand. Who can hear them? Lord, you're saying some difficult things. I'll tell you what he was doing. He was separating the sheep from the goats that day. And they went out from him because they were not of him. They were following God for their bellies. You study John 6. You'll figure that out. They were studying. They were following him because he had fed them. Physically had fed them. And so Jesus, he made a he made a parting of the ways through His sermon, through His message. So we see there is a, there is a way that's constricted. So how tight is too tight? There's also the temptation of tainted fruits. I've alluded to that you know, in the illustrations of the blackberries versus the grapes. And you know, Do we grow figs and thistles? No, we understand. And so we can know them by their fruits. Now this, this is something that we have to consider. Because going back to the Sermon on the Mount again, to the earlier verses of chapter 7, we're told, judge not that you be not judged. Whatever you measure out is going to be measured back. So from that we take away, there's no way I can know everybody's heart. People can come into the church and say, you know, I want to do this in ministry, I want to get involved in this, I want to do that. And so we prove people. And by that, what we mean is we want them to stick around long enough so that we know the product of their teaching. That's biblical. Because that's what Jesus taught His disciples to do. 
We don't throw caution into the wind and let anybody come in and teach whatever they want. Because it's going to end in destruction. That's the danger. The soul hangs in the balance. And it matters. And so as they come, they get involved, eventually we see what kind of fruit they produce in their, in their ministry. If they produce good fruit, then you can tell. It's observable. And we have changed lives in our church because we have disciples who are following the Lord and they don't have it all figured out. They just want to follow Jesus. And they, and they do this and they, they lead people along in the Word and fruit begins to come in their life and, and they're living in contentment and godliness and, and they're growing in the Scriptures and they're looking more and more like Jesus every day and, and that's good fruit. And then there's others who would come and we find out there's heartache and there's sorrow and there's selfishness, there's pride, there's other fruits, you know. We can observe what the fruit of the Spirit looks like from Galatians 5. But there's also the fruit of misery, the fruit of the world, and the barrenness that the world brings. And so, he gives the illustration, there's two trees. These are uh, contrasting the false teachers. They come in disguise. Uh, really inside, they're desperately famished. And boy, if they could only just see that Jesus would fill that need. He could. He could, he could help those that come famished. He did it for me. I know He can do it for them, but they won't let go of their, their ways. The two trees and then the tainted fruits. Two illustrations there. Notice also here, and I, and I finished with this, the terrifying tragedy of twisted truth. This is in verses 21 and following down to verse 23. The tragedy of twisted truth. Again, this is illustrated by the Pharisees, is it not? They had the oracles of God given to them. They had the very Word of God that they could have lived by, but they took that and they twisted it to say, well, you can only walk so far on the Sabbath. Well, you can't pick up your bed on the Sabbath. Well, you can't do this on the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't, you can't spit in the clay and make you know clay out of that, Jesus. You're breaking the Sabbath because you're working on the Sabbath. Uh, your disciples can't, can't go through and grab the corns of, of wheat and and shake those in their hands and, and eat those because you're breaking the Sabbath. You're, you're winnowing on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. Show me in the Law of Moses where God ever said they couldn't do that. Yeah, and Jesus even used the Scripture to combat them. Did you note that? He said, have you not considered my servant David? How when he was in hunger, they did something that wasn't mm, exactly what you should do. They went into it and they took the showbread that was supposed to be used for worship. They took that because they were famished. Hey, there are times in life when the ox is in the ditch. And if you're going to live so rigidly by your religion that you're not going to help somebody on the Sabbath and you're going to say, these are the lines. You see, we're, are we guilty of doing that too sometimes, I wonder? Can we not take the simple truths of Scripture and live in the simplicity of Christ and understand the Bible in its simple form and let the teachings of God stand and live. You see how liberating this path is? The Broadway, it, it's almost a, a counterfeit, isn't it? Because it boasts of being able to live and, and do this, but it really brings judgment. It really brings a constricting because there's, there's just no peace in the end of that. But when you come through Christ, it opens up to this liberal place. Stand fast in the liberty you have in Christ. You are free to serve. Jesus 
Uh, Hosea and Gomer is the greatest Old Testament picture of Jesus' redemption for us as slaves. We were in the market of sin. And Jesus Christ came and redeemed us. Now, when someone buys a slave in Bible days, usually that slave goes and lives with their master and is, and is uh, their servant for the rest of their life. But here's what Jesus says. He buys us back from the world and from the devil and from the flesh. And he says, now you're free to go. <laughs> what? And that's the day when I met the master. And like that picture in the Old Testament of that servant, that the, you know, the jubilee comes and he says, you're free to go. And that servant says, why would I want to do that? You've been so good to me. You, you did so much for me. And they walk over to the doorpost and they take that all and they mark that man or that, that person and they put that earring on that person because he's going to serve that master for, his, for the rest of his life. And you don't see any physical earrings on here, but can I tell you, I am Jesus's. And I came humbly to him and I said, Lord, there's no other one I want to serve. There's nobody else that can do for me what you've done for me. Here is my life. Take it and seal it, Lord. Use me as you would see fit. Whether it's a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor, Lord, use me. I'll be what you want me to be. Now I would pray that I would be able to walk in the teachings of Scripture and understand doctrine that I can be fashioned into a vessel of honor for the Master's use. The vessels of dishonor, Paul told Timothy, those are the ones that will be discarded in the end because there's no profit, there's no value in them. And so as a disciple of Christ, if you want to be a vessel of honor for the Lord, you've got to come through the narrow way. The gospel invitation is given here. and Jesus opens it up, I think really in these verses, that there is a way that leads to destruction. There's a hell and you'll find it. If you continue in your sins and you die in unbelief without Christ, you will die and pay the penalty for your sins for all eternity. But that's not God's will. He says there's another way. There's only one way to get to that road. And it's through Jesus Christ. And if you'll come through Him, if you will give your life to Him who died for you and say, Lord, here am I, then that's the road that leads to life. Few there be that find it. I don't know how many Years that cavern lay dormant and dark with no human interaction until a little light shone through a hole somewhere in the backside of a cave. Few there be that find it. See, everybody's on the Broadway. But do you come to Christ? Do you come through His shed blood? Do you come by faith and say, Lord, here I am. I confess. I believe on Jesus. And I receive Him as my Savior. And I want to follow Him with the rest of my life. Don't wind up twisting the truth of God. Because you'll rest it to your own destruction. And there's a terrifying tragedy of twisted truths. Two testimonies. Lord, we did this and this and this. His testimony was, I never knew you. Which will it be? Will it be a terrifying fate? Or will it be a terrific time in heaven? I'm a preacher. I got alliterated. Amen. I don't know about you, but I want heaven.